Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, today's episode is going to highlight a group that was brought to our attention some time ago. Uh, people had reached out to us to let us know there was this crew in Louisiana doing amazing things, really bringing to our attention the energy uh, that this group was bringing to the Louisiana French community. And when Mike and I were talking about maybe doing something a little bit different uh, around Mardi Gras time, we thought maybe this would be the perfect opportunity to reach beyond our New England area and highlight this amazing organization, an organization I really, really hope to learn a few things from. And joining us from this amazing group, Tele Louisiane, is Will McGrew, founder and CEO. Will, welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, merci beaucoup. We're really happy to be here and uh, honored for the invitation. Now, I'd like to get your story, first of all. Where are you from? So that's always interesting, and it's often a question I get since my name is Will McGrew. Neither of my names. Kidding, you don't have a French are. name. <laughs> I don't have a French name. One of the one of the three people in Louisiana without a French name. Um, but it's actually pretty interesting because I think my connection to French is pretty. It's a it's a exception in Louisiana, but at the same time, it kind of shows the larger dynamic of why French is so important to Louisiana. So I'm born and raised in New Orleans. My mom is from Louisiana. My dad is from rural Florida, um, and then moved to Louisiana, moved to New Orleans, which is the big city. And so my mom's family goes back on her dad's side, like six six or so generations in Louisiana. Uh, not much uh, French ancestry, maybe one or two ancestors, but predominantly Irish. My dad's side is also very Irish, thus the McGrew. Oh, um, yeah. But right, exactly. And then um, <laughs> my dad, my, my mom's mom, on the other hand, she was Spanish, though. She was actually a Spanish immigrant brought to Louisiana. She left during the Spanish Civil War. My grandmother was very interested in um, the French language in Louisiana. Um, and so she had started learning French in Spain when she was growing up, but then she kind of studied it more so when she was here. And she participated in a lot of different societies and activities related to French in Louisiana. And then she also did, she was involved in the educational community, did some, did, she taught at Tulane for a little bit, did some ESL stuff. And then also my grandfather was a, a lawyer and so she did a good amount of translation for my grandfather because a lot of his clients, um, especially for what we know as like Cajun country, were sure. um, French speakers and they spoke French as their first language. Anyway, and then my mom actually also speaks French. Uh, my mom learned French a little bit growing up, practiced it with her mom. My mom also speaks Spanish. It makes sense since my grandmother's from Spain. Um, and then sure. my mom actually studied uh, law school uh, in law school in France for uh, a year and a half given the similarities with the civil code in Louisiana. Sure. That's the backstory. And then uh, growing up, I didn't really, we spoke a little bit of Spanish in the house. And then I knew that my grandmother and mother spoke French. And then in high school, I started learning French before Spanish. Not so much in the way that I'm learning it now, where I'm like, oh, French is the language of Louisiana. And um, yeah, there wasn't as much regionalism. It was more just like, oh, I'm in Louisiana. We have the French history. So unlike in other places where you would learn Spanish first, I'm going to learn French first. In high school, I was like, okay, I want to master the language. I want to, you know, just more from a linguistic perspective. But then there was another um, kind of fortuitous thing that was an only in Louisiana experience where 
I had cousins who were in French immersion school here, which is an opportunity that doesn't exist in most most other places in in America. And they had uh, friends who had relatives in France, and they wanted to do an exchange. And so I did an exchange with this family in France that I met through my cousin's immersion school. And so I did a summer abroad in France. Yeah, it was it was, it was an incredible experience. I was in Toulouse for five weeks, and then the French oh, wow. um, kid, Remy came to live with us in New Orleans for five weeks. And so it was then where I really started speaking French pretty well. Um, and then I was more and more interested in the French. I took a, a gap year in Morocco with the State Department, oh, practicing a lot of French there. Um, and they just, I know this is like a, a huge backstory, but then just to kind of finish no, the loop. Awesome. Okay, cool, cool. And then in um, and then in college was when it's interesting because I went to college out of state. Actually, I went in, I went to college in New England in Connecticut. And I went, and it was then though, I started doing research on, I studied economics and political science. Um, and I started doing research on kind of one, the benefits, the economic and political benefits of having a regional language and having bilingualism alive in regions like Quebec or Acadie, Acadia, or in Catalonia, or in um, parts of Scotland, et cetera. But then I also started doing research into, for my thesis, what are the elements of the infrastructure that you need in order to keep a language alive? And so it was during this process that I started connecting all the dots, you know, in terms of my history uh, in Louisiana. My grandmother, you know, was participating in these Franco-Louisiana societies that I just thought were like, oh, it's just like the Alliance Francaise. But I later learned that it's things like Causerie Louisianaise, Athenay Louisianaise, these other societies that are not international, they only exist in Louisiana and were founded by Louisiana Creoles and Louisiana French speakers in the 18th and 19th centuries to keep to keep French alive. And then in terms of my mom speaking French and studying the French in the civil code, and then me learning French first as opposed to Spanish, which probably would have been the case in other in other states. And then, yeah, and then just kind of doing research on my friends and, you know, their relatives who still speak, spoke French, et cetera. And I realized, wow, Louisiana is just like, could be, really is historically and could continue to be just like these other places like Quebec, Acadie, Catalonia, et cetera. But it's really a question of political and economic will. And so I was, it was clear to me, wow, this is so exciting. This is, this is so much potential you know, for Louisiana if we really invest in it. And so I started thinking about what are the missing elements of the infrastructure? And that's how I got to Louisiana because I realized you know, there's a lot of other elements, right? But what is key, two things that are key are education and media. And like you guys are in the media space. So it's clear that you guys probably, this is, you know, it's not news to you. But I realized in Louisiana, we had education. You know, there are still reforms that we need for education. We need, uh, sure. we say, you know, Louisianiser, Louisianiser l'éducation uh, a little bit, because right now it's just, for the most part, it's standard French. And a lot of us in the Louisianiste, uh, Franco-Louisiane, uh, Cajun Creole movement would like it to be Louisiana French. Sure. But there is education, right? Like I have friends who are part of the movement, who are part of the movement specifically because they were in immersion. But media, on the other hand, historically there had been francophone media, actually numerous uh, newspapers. Um, there was there were some TV programs. The TV aspect was always limited. But currently at that time, there were there was very limited French media made in Louisiana by Louisianans. Um, yeah, and so then I contacted a bunch of documentarians, filmmakers, artists, amateur journalists, and I said, y'all, I think we need a, you know, to make keep the language alive, we need to create media in the language so people can access it. Yeah, and then I guess that was about a year and a half ago, and then so awesome. the rest so is history. Awesome. Yeah. Now that's cool. I'm curious though. I mean, you mentioned a couple of things uh, yeah. with your thesis that you need because this is something that obviously a major reason why this podcast exists, a major reason for all the work we do behind the scenes at the right. French Canadian Legacy is trying to prolong the language culture heritage. So right. what? 
infrastructure tools are needed in order to make that happen? You mentioned a couple. I'm, ch I'm just curious what other ones that your thesis tells me uh, that I need to find. I mean, I think about it a lot from like an economic perspective. And so it's like, how do you deal with like the supply? It's a little bit kind of a supply and demand framework, right? And so sure. in a place like Louisiana or New Hampshire or uh, other parts of New England with a Francophone heritage, the good news is that there's like an appetite for keeping the language alive in a lot of these places and reacquiring the language. The issue sure. is that just like in terms of, so there is there is that demand. But the issue is that in terms of the supply perspective, the supply of the language, so to speak, the supply of language education, it's more limited for a variety of reasons, like notably like the history of discrimination and then the neglect more recently. And so I think the key things are making the language more accessible and more present. And so first thing first is like education. You need to have education in the language because you need to make sure that one, send the message that the language is like English and is a legitimate language that can be the language of education, can be the language of business, et cetera. But then you also need, once people speak the language, you need places for that language to exist organically. And so I would say two key pillars beyond that is like after the education, you need the media piece, which is obviously the space you were in and the space that we're in. And sure. that piece I think is important both from the perspective of keeping the language alive, right? Like you're speaking in the language, but then even more importantly, it, or perhaps even more importantly at the initial stage is changing changing mentalities and changing opinions and beliefs about the language. And so that can actually be done in English or in French, right? Because so many people who have stereotypes and flawed mindsets about the language are people who are totally Anglophone. So that's why the media piece is important. And then I would say the third the third key piece is the economic piece. And obviously it's kind of an ecosystem between the education, the media and the economy. It's a self-reinforcing cycle. But then the economic piece is key because then it gives, one, it kind of convinces leaders that it, it's something that matters and it's something that pays off. You know, it like brings business investment, it brings tourism, um, it brings economic activity to a lot of regions, at least in Louisiana, for example, a lot of the, the very rural areas that are dealing with a, a lack of economic activity, a loss of jobs, a loss of populations are some of the richest culturally um, in most Francophone regions. So there's an economic piece. But then on the other side is that it gives um, money, it puts money behind the movement. Um, and so it becomes less of like, oh, this is just for the culture. And it becomes more of an argument of, oh, this is key for not only keeping our culture alive, but keeping our economy vibrant and diversified and dynamic for the next generation. And so that's what we kind of make our pitch is that we're, we're trying to be this bridge, you know, it's like we're trying to grab onto what we have in the past and then project it into the future. And that's so critical in a place like Louisiana where we're dealing with, we, we are in desperate need of economic diversification. Our economy is almost exclusively reliant on the tourism industry and then obviously the um, oil, oil and gas and petrochemical industry. And there's all sorts of conversations you can have about those two industries, but at the very least, one, we need to diversify. And then two, natural resources are, are by their nature um, finite. And so we need a plan for what will our economy be once we can't rely on these two things anymore. Um, and the culture is a, is a key asset that we have and therefore a self-evident path forward for us if we make the right choices to invest in that infrastructure now. I mean, one thing that we hear all the time, because uh, there's an active movement to try to get uh, some kind of French language schools 
in this area. We don't have any right. at all, especially in right. the public school system. And of course, the argument that we hear all the time is, uh, you know, we can barely afford the schools that we have, right? Uh, how can right. we invest money into this alternate program when we're struggling to carry on our own traditional programs? And right. I think you're you're 100% right. If you get, get a tie in the economic piece or else that narrative is never going to change, it'll never switch. How accessible is French language education in Louisiana, like can any, literally anybody who wants to get to it, or is it only certain places that you have to be fortunate enough to live in in order for it to be an option for you? So yeah, there's a few different pieces. I mean, it's pretty accessible. I think it's it's definitely like the most accessible of anywhere else in the country. We now have um, 30 immersion programs, I think more or less, I think it's 28, 29, something in that in that range. So that's great. And we're yeah, absolutely more. So I'll, I'll talk about the good and the bad. The good is that sure. um, there is this infrastructure that's set up. Codafil has a system. Um, that's very uh, well well rigged, well well trained in terms of if a parish, you know, we don't have we don't have counties, we have parishes down right. here. Uh, if a parish wants to open an immersion program, it's pretty easy um, in terms of what they need to do. They need to contact. There's a there's a finance issue, but they need to contact the Codafil. Codafil and the Depart State Department of Education will set them up with everything they need. Set them up with uh, French teachers if necessary from French Canada from France, from Belgium, we have a system of recruiting sure. teachers, which is great. And then on the flip side of that is that there's now in parishes where the school board doesn't want to, because of these like financial considerations or whatever the excuse is, doesn't want to op open a program, but there's a demand from parents. Since 2011, I think more or less, there's a law called the Immersion School Choice Law, which allows parents, if they collect 30 signatures of parents who want a French immersion program in their parish, the school board is obligated to open to open a program, which is great, right? And so that's great that we have those mechanisms set up. But then there's a few different flaws that exist in the system. So like the first is um, there's a kind of PR issue. So there's a lot of parishes that are the most francophone in which there isn't, and therefore like parents would be eager to write, have a, a program for their kids to keep the language of, of the, their language perhaps, or at least their sure. parents and grandparents alive. Um, but they're not aware of like how to access Codafil and like how to go about doing that. So there is some work that needs to be done there. And there's people there's people that are starting to, to do that work and, and something that we're trying to get involved in increasingly. The second issue is that within parishes where there's an abundance of programs, it can be difficult to get access because they're in super high demand. And so, for example, okay. in New Orleans, there's a good number of programs. I think New Orleans, which is ironic because everyone's always like, oh, there's no French in New Orleans and <laughs> complaining, complaining about that. And there is some truth to like New Orleans was one of the first parts of Louisiana to assimilate because they really focused a lot of resources since it was an economic center on making it very sure. anglicized anglophone. But at the same time, there is this resurgence. Um, but the issue is that it's kind of hard to get, it can be hard to get a, a spot in the best program since they're so in high demand. And then the flip side of that is that there's no mechanism for the state or for, for parents. If your parish already has a program, there's no mechanism like there is for parents in parishes without programs to kind of force the school board to create um, a program. And so that's something also that there's conversations about changing the law because there is such a great demand. So for example, just to kind of close that point, like the last immersion program that opened here in New Orleans, its demand was five to six times larger than the supply of places, which just shows that wow. there is this huge appetite for reacquiring the language. And it just comes back to like, how do we set up the infrastructure to make reacquiring the language easier? That's the thing. It's, it's definitely the most accessible that it's, it's ever been in history. And that also sure. compared to anywhere else in, in America, the most accessible for French language, but both in terms of regionally and then as well as 
because of there's like uh, because it can be hard in certain parishes. There's like class and race considerations too because it can be hard in a parish like New Orleans. But then the flip side of that is that you have parishes that are you know you think are relatively poor, don't have that many resources, but because they're relatively small parishes. A lot of kids, black, white, rich, poor, all of the above, are able to get spots in French immersion, uh, which is really the great promise of immersion. It can be this equalizer where all sorts of kids from all sorts of different backgrounds, whether or not they have French heritage, are able to become bilingual and have this added advantage, which is great, obviously, not for the state and for our workforce, but obviously for them individually in terms of their uh, their prospects for social mobility. So it's like there's good and bad. Uh, it's in, It's better than it's ever been, but there's still some reforms that need to be made. No, I think that's tremendous what you guys have been able to do. And I'd love at some point to be able to kind of get my hands on some of the data that comes out of the kids that get out of this program. Because I think that's going to be a huge piece for us in selling it up here in New Hampshire is to show that the kids who come through this program benefit from having had this program. Like, here's here's some hard numbers, school board. There you go. Because that's that's how the school boards work around here. Exactly. (laughs) For sure. Here too. Here too, yeah. For us, obviously, language is a huge, huge deal. Um, yeah. But it, it always—it's always been like one of the pillars yeah. of the of the culture. Uh, right. For us, you know, you get the traditions, you get the faith. I'm curious, how does your organization or other groups kind of work to promote those kind of areas as well? That's one of the advantages, and so I don't know if this is—I think this might be a slight difference from New England versus Louisiana is that in Louisiana, there is a general acceptance that the culture is like widely, widely accepted. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not as, um, it's not as threatened, so to speak. You know what I mean? It's gotcha. Like, sure, sure. The, yeah. the language aspect is, is threatened, of course. And there's aspects of the culture that, that are threatened, but the, the, the masses, right? Almost everyone, expat, from here, born here, French speaker, not French speaker, tends to agree that like, there's no Louisiana culture without French and without Cajun and Creole culture, right? And so because of that, it's kind of a, what we say in French is like a point de départ. It's like an entryway where you say, oh, okay, you like gumbo, you like Cajun music, you like (laughs) Creole music, you like Creole food, whatever it is. Well, let me tell you about how how this culture came into existence. And like almost every single cultural tradition or food or type of music Etc. in Louisiana was either created by French and Creole speakers or created by people that were descended from French and Creole speakers. So the cultural piece is part of it for sure for us. And so we always try to use that as an entryway into the language. And so in terms of our, um, that like in terms of making the pitch, it goes like that. But then also like increasingly in terms of our programming and like the media we create, basically up until this point, we've kind of just done one-off interviews or short films or documentaries and you'll see that the culture is obviously uh, woven through all of that. But we're in the process now of like slotting out a few different regular programs. And the idea for them is there will be one to two um, educational programs, specifically about Louisiana French or Louisiana Creole and, and learning the language. But then the other ones will predominantly be just cultural programs, or there might be one that's an environmental program in which we talk about these aspects of Louisiana that everyone loves and everyone wants to learn more about. But then either you do it fully in French, in Louisiana French, or you do it bilingually. So therefore, you make it about the language and the culture. For us, too, the culture is totally part of it. Um, within Tel Louisiane, we focus a little bit more on the language and the culture as it relates to the language, just because there's already an abundance of organizations in Louisiana working directly on the culture. But at the same time, kind of more broadly, in terms of the speaking as like a member of the movement, not just a member right. of Tel Louisiane, at the end of the day, this is only going to be successful if we make the language part of a larger, what I would call 
regionalist or in in French, in Quebec, they would call like a, a nationalist, nationaliste is what they would say. Or in Spain also, they would call it a nationalist movement. In English, we don't have that idea of like a regionalist, inclusive nationalism, right? There's just nationalism. Sure. You think racial, racial division, white supremacy, et cetera. But at the same time, at the end of the day, in order for the French to, to survive, um, it must be part of this broader movement for keeping Louisiana's culture, economy, and way of life alive. And that's why it's so important that all the arguments that we make, it's like we care about Louisiana's, like la Louisianisation of education and of all these other different spheres because it's, a, it's an end in and of itself. It's like our culture is valuable and should be kept alive as an end in and of itself. But also sure. it's a strategic thing, right? Like people in Louisiana, it's obviously self-evident, but we've also experienced this so much in terms of our day-to-day -day interactions with people. If you just come with them with French, for them, that's a foreign language, right? It, it doesn't necessarily have a connection, especially if you're someone who has zero French heritage, which is, you know, a decent number of people. On sure. the other hand, if you come about them with the Louisiana French and the Louisiana culture, then people are like, oh, I get that. Like, that's why that's called this. And that's why this food that I eat is called this. And that's why my favorite musician sings in this language. You know what I mean? Then people get it and people want to be a part of it. Um, so, yeah, it's the language is key, but it's also part of a larger cultural cultural ecosystem that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, you know? That's so awesome. Now, uh, you mentioned a couple times the phrase Louisiana French. Yeah. And obviously you guys have your own unique French, just kind of the way the people come down to here have their own uh, right. unique French. And one story that we get over and over and over again is even in New Hampshire, places where there's tons of, you know, French Canadians moved down, the native French speakers, a lot of times got the backlash because they were told the French they spoke was inferior. You hear the stories of people in the local high school, uh, everybody that, you know, the kids of the mill workers were told that they had to sit on one side of the French classroom so that their French didn't pollute, you know, the real French, the correct French that the teacher right. was going to teach everybody else. And I'm just wondering if, your unique situation in Louisiana means that you didn't have to go through that down there? Or is this something that you still see, you still hear, you still see that judgment when you hear somebody speaking that Louisiana French being told that that's not real French? Yes, definitely. Like it was, we, we had the same thing, basically. That's what's so interesting about like, I, I want to learn more about New England. I have one, one, one friend in Maine who's kind of educated me a little bit about the situation with French in, Louis in New England. But that's the one thing it's kind of, there are some differences because my understanding is that most French speakers in New England were immigrants to New England, right, from French Canada, where in Quebec predominantly. Whereas here it was a reverse sure. where it's like the French speakers were here and then the anglophones came. And so exactly, that can create right. dynamics. Like, for example, like what I was talking about where in terms of the culture thing up there, I think you guys have this cultural pluralism. And we obviously have cultural pluralism here, but it's like the, the French side won the cultural battle, if not... The linguistic battle but <laughs> like um, <laughs> you know what i mean like every even the most 100 percent anglophone people they'll throw french on their uh menus or their branding or whatever because they get that people want louisiana and new orleans to be different um yeah. but in terms of that dynamic that was 100 percent the same thing and it's definitely started to change and you know the number of people and it's really so sad right because it's like the number of people who we we approach or either online or in person or whatever. And we're like, oh, we're these young people. We're trying to keep the culture alive. Our mamas and papas spoke the language. We're trying to like reclaim it. But then they just say, um, they're all members. So many of them are members of La Génération Perdue, the lost generation, who didn't acquire the language because they were in this middle zone where it was like the persecution of the Louisiana French meant that the only speakers. So there, there's this common belief that because of the persecution, some people think that 
historically, Louisiana French was only transmitted orally, which is actually like not the case at all. There's like a rich literature. There was like law, everything, business, everything was in French in Louisiana until like the early the early 20th century. But because of the persecution that happened in the early 20th century, really, it was when a lot of it happened when um, when the oil industry took off. And so there were a lot of people moving in from Oklahoma and Texas, and therefore they wanted a lot to be in English. So when that persecution happened, they started to get rid of uh, by by. I don't, I don't mean them, like the people from Oklahoma and Texas, but the, sure. the, the, the powers that be right. started to get rid of French in all of the official domains. And so previously, the government and the laws used to be bilingual, and then that became increasingly anglicized. There was the Constitution passed that said French could not be the language of instruction. So it, it made all students go to, it all made all, all young people go to education and made mandatory education, which is obviously wonderful. But then it also made that education mandatory in English, which was a big change. Um, up to that sure. point, there are numerous uh, French-speaking schools in Louisiana. And so before the Génération Perdue, there was this generation of people who still spoke French as their first language, but then only spoke it orally because it could no longer be transmitted in a written sense because government and business and all the other official domains, media, all the other official domains of life were anglicized. And so then you have the Génération Perdue, which so they tell the stories of then their parents who then went to school and they spoke French fluently because it was still passed on from their parents, but right. it was so denigrated and so looked down upon because it didn't exist in an officialized context anymore. And so whereas if French had still existed in the newspapers, in government, in media, in business, it would have been hard to say, oh, this is a, this is a dirty pigeon language. This isn't a real language that you're speaking. C'est pas du bon français. It would be impossible to say that because you could say, oh, well, look, my, my governor speaks French. My senator speaks French. Uh, that successful businessman, the free people of color speak French. And so then during that period in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, that was just everywhere. And we hear that all the time from people, you know, yeah, my, you know, my mama and papa, they went to school and they were beaten for speak French. My, my mom, my dad, the same thing. And so as a result of that, still to this day, we hear people who say, oh, it's impossible. It's impossible to keep it alive because of this lost generation. Um, but the good news is that that's finally that's finally starting to change. The way it still manifests itself, I think, is that one way, this kind of um, defeatism. I don't mean to say that to blame people, but people still think, oh, it's not worth it. They, it yeah, lost. we got that you know? here, too, big time. Yeah. Right. And then the other way is that people still will throw out, like, you'll talk to other people who go to talk to people who speak Louisiana French or Cajun French or Creole French, and they'll say, oh, well, yeah, like, I speak French fluently, but I couldn't understand anything they said. And, like, that is just total, like, BS. Like, literally anyone... Anyone that says that is not trying hard enough because it's like me, I learned totally standardized French and like I communicate perfectly, sometimes with a little bit of effort, but with <laughs> any of the dialects of French and even Creole, like Louisiana Creole is a fully different language and I sure. can communicate with people who speak Creole too. Um, so that's the other way it manifests itself. And people are like, oh, well, I, they speak Cajun. They don't speak real French, but we we're part of the, it's not just us, but other people are trying to change that where it's like, okay, you speak Cajun French, you speak Creole French, but I bet you, you can still communicate with our friends from Quebec or New England or France. And then that's, again, key to the economic argument, right? Because it's like to prove that it's an economic asset, you have to prove that it's not only unique, but it's mutually intelligible with these other dialects of French and therefore could attract business activity. So we're getting there, that's but awesome. there's still some stereotypes uh, here too. So, What is the decline look like as far as numbers-wise? Do you guys know? Because yes, you mentioned it's a, threat, it's a threatened language. Like how threatened? What are we talking it's about? It's very threatened. It's very threatened. So basically, like in the um, in 1970, more or less, there were a million speakers. Today, it's difficult. The difficult the issue is that the statistics are not that good. All we have is the census data 
uh, for the most part. And the census data, what they ask is, what is the language you speak at home? And so okay. from that, we know that in the 70s, it was approximately a million people. And then since then, there's been a precipitous decline because of, even though it seems like counterintuitive because La Renaissance Cadienne, the, the Cajun Renaissance, when Codafil was founded and the immersion program started, was in the 60s and 70s. There's two, two things I think that explain the decline. One, we were still dealing with the after effects of this eradication of French from public life. And so therefore there was still like the decline. But then two, one of the limitations I would say of the Renaissance Cadienne, and this is not something I think it was um, self-imposed. I think actually many of the leaders in the Renaissance Cadienne would have wanted to go further. And in fact, there's evidence that they did want to go further, but they were kind of, even though they did reestablish French, they were limited to the box of kind of like folklore folklore and education. So they were able to reestablish a stranglehold for French and keep French alive and create the next generation of French speakers, but they weren't really able to normalize it in a way to create a self-sustaining ecosystem in French such that French was still spoken kind of in the home and in a natural way and still transferred to the next generation. And so we're trying to like fill those gaps now, kind of build on what this great infrastructure that we already have. Um, and so today, we it's estimated there's a, there's slightly under 100,000 people who report that they still speak French in the home, which gotcha. is obviously, there. it's two sides. On the one hand, that's 10% of what it was, obviously, in, in 1970, which is horribly, horribly depressing. On the other hand, 100,000 people, or even if it's 89,000, more or less, that's a lot of people. That's you know a lot of I mean? people. So no, no, yeah. That's a lot of Absolutely. people still saying that they speak French in the home. And so our belief and our pitch is that we have this window of opportunity. We lose about, even though we're building new French speakers who speak French in the schools, we lose people who report speaking French in the home about like three to 5,000, in some cases more each year. And so our pitch is that if we just keep with the status quo, we'll have many more French speakers in Louisiana, right? We'll have all these kids who graduated from French immersion schools. But if we don't like, if we don't work on the Louisianisation point, we will lose Louisiana, Louisiana French will die, right? Because it's like if sure. these French speakers are not learning how to speak Louisiana French and are not learning the importance of French in Louisiana, we won't ever, Louisiana French will die. And so basically that is our pitch. It's like we have the people, we have at least, you know, approximately 80,000, 90,000, potentially more, right? Because there might be more people who don't speak it in the home, but still speak the authentic dialect. And so we have those people still alive who can speak the authentic dialect, create media in the authentic dialect, uh, transfer the authentic authentic dialect to the next generation. And then we have this infrastructure now where you can be educated in French, you can create media in French increasingly, you can work in French in some domains, et cetera. And so we can make that connection so that the French that we're speaking and then the culture that we're practicing and the ecosystem sure. that we're building is that Louisiana French Cajun Creole culture and cu cultural ecosystem. Or we can like lâcher la patate and then we'll just have people, you know, we'll have a bunch of bilingual kids in Louisiana, but Louisiana French won't really exist um, any sort of real, in any sort of real way. So sure. that's kind of where yeah. we are. It's that's kind of a dire situation, man. but we're optimistic. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I mean, you guys are doing amazing things, no doubt. And one thing that uh, gets me excited is the whole idea of uh, some people wanting to identify like want to have like you know you mentioned you want to see something French on a menu like right. that they want that to still be part of the culture. I mean that's so different than a lot of the stuff we hear up here where you know French came synonymous with like uh, low class or right. be, became synonymous with like somebody being poor. Uh, so they right. hid from it for a long time. So it's it's super encouraging to hear that now. 
In the same token, I'm curious, because one thing that we've talked about a bunch here is that there's something called, like, the French vote doesn't really, at least best we could tell, exist in New Hampshire right. anymore. Right. It used to. Like, right. there's definitely other groups, like, people will go out and they'll try to pursue, like, the Greek vote. But the French vote as a collective block used to be a thing. is now kind of not a thing anymore. Do you have any idea if that's like, are people running for office down where you are and going way out of their way to make sure they stick 17 fleur de lis on their signs? So, yeah. So, so definitely like culturally, like the vote still very much exists. And like, um, especially in some of these parishes where it is like very historically Francophone or Cajun or Creole, whatever, sure. depending on the parish, whatever you want to call it, the, the vote definitely does exist in terms of the culture. In terms of the language, it's a little less present. And also it's part of this whole issue. It's part of the heritage of this whole issue where it's like, oh, okay, we speak French, we're proud of it, but it's not really like a real language that we can speak in the public domain. And so gotcha. even though more people, yeah, so even though there would be more people, I think that would be open to it. It's just the custom is not to, to do it as much. But um, historically, historically, it was very present. Like you're saying, it was a very similar thing where there would be ads in the 70s and the 80s. For example, we found a, a poster for Jimmy Carter that was in French and it was used throughout the uh, throughout Louisiana in the 70s. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And there's all sorts of other things like that. But you will still find to this day, it, it's, it's more limited, but uh, especially like to this day, like in the last election even, ads where there will, more common, there will be just French in, in the ad, you know what I mean? Gotcha, um, yeah. Less common, less common. There will be like a whole ad in French, and so, for example, uh, we helped. We were we helped produce an ad for the gubernatorial election for the the incumbent governor who was reelected, but in cooperation with this um, with one of his cabinet members. So his name is Jack Montusay. He's from the Lafayette region. I'm pretty sure he's from Scott, and he speaks French fluently as his first language. And so we did an ad for. He had already done his own ad, a radio ad, and then he said, "Oh, sure. video, that sounds fun." And so we helped him do <laughs> a video ad. And so it's still TBD, you know, like what the the payoff is. Like it's it's harder to find the, the vote. It's not like in the 70s or 80s where you could go to like Crowley or Mamu or whatever. And like the French vote was there. Like, you know, you, right. you see yeah, it absolutely. like in the yeah, flesh. Yeah. It's more hidden now. But like, I think that's where it kind of comes back to your point about making the language part of the culture. And the point I was making about regionalism and an inclusive nationalism and like a Louisianism is that I think that vote is very much there. Like this whole vote of like, Louisiana is this special place, this special culture, and like it's not always going to be that way, and we need to do something about it on the cultural front, on the environmental front, on the linguistic front, on the economic way of life front. That vote, I think, is definitely very there, and so it's all about kind of weaving the language into this broader narrative that people already are already connect to to some extent, and just kind of like solidifying and rejigging that connection a bit. That's so awesome. Now, something a little bit different topic but made a big impression on those of us up here who are kind of paying attention was when Louisiana was welcomed back into the international organization of La Francophonie. Right. That was, that was a huge deal because New England used to have a seat at that table. We don't need more. Oh, really? Yeah. So now that it's awesome to see you guys back and I'm just curious if you could, uh, just given for those who have no idea, what, what is that organization about? Cause I think it's awesome that you guys are, are back invited to that. For me, I think the biggest models for the advantages of membership. So basically the OIF is the International Organization of La Francophonie. So it's like all or not. Um, I think almost all of the um, uh, states like uh, nation states and then as well as um, some sub state regions or provinces 
et cetera, like Quebec, um, or in, now in our case, Louisiana, where French is spoken as the official language predominantly, or French is spoken to some extent, or really, and that's the thing that makes it even more embarrassing that like Louisiana hadn't been a part of it and New England, I guess, still is not, or is no longer a part of it, is that there's additional places where they're not even French speaking, but there's just an interest in French and like the <laughs> economic benefits of being part sure. of that francophonie. So for example, my understanding is like the last summit happened in Armenia, which is a member of uh, the OIF, obviously not, yeah. I, my understanding is not a historically French speaking. Ireland's got a seat. Right, exactly. So exactly. <laughs> there's other ones like that. And so I think that just shows that there's clear economic benefits, you know, of having your seat at the table and just being a part of the organization, period. Uh, but then having the French very much exist and be alive is an even added benefit. And it, it makes you it, it gives your it makes sure it gives you even more of a seat at the table, so to speak. And I think Quebec is really perhaps one of the best examples of how to basically how to take advantage of the heritage language, both internally. In this case, I'm talking externally. Internally, we could talk about I have lots of thoughts about the, the role of the French, French in La Révolution Tranquille and the development of social solidarity and and a welfare state largely based on this solidification of a collective identity. But then in the external context, they also do a great job. You know what I mean? They they show that Quebec is, you know, there's a whole nationalist history and everything, but even the people who are not uh, in for independence think that Quebec is like a nation. That's the term that they use. Like Quebec right. is a nation within Canada and therefore should defend its own interests, both internally and externally. And so through the OIF and then through this kind of approach that it's like we deserve a seat at the table because we're unique and we're different and we have this French-speaking heritage history, they get numerous economic opportunities and numerous um, greater tourism, greater business investment. They have offices like de facto embassies all around the world in India, in the U.S., in Europe. I, I think in New England, they have one in Boston, I'm pretty sure. Shows how the OIF is key, right? Because the OIF has a numerous programs and exchanges and opens you up to funding. And so that, that's whole that's that's a whole logistical, there's a whole technical aspect to it. But then even from a symbolic aspect, I think that's perhaps just as important because it's like Louisiana then is in the mindset of Francophones around the world in the 100%. same way. Absolutely. Yep. That means business investment, tourism, all the above. You know, it's more likely to go to Louisiana as opposed to Texas because Louisiana is different in this way. And also from their perspective, similar to them in that way, because we share the French language. I have to follow up, though, because you've piqued my interest. What is your take, then, on the language and the revolution tranquille? Oh, okay. So for me, so that, that's interesting for me. And so, like, I I, mean, I I gave the example of so my grandmother's from Spain. She's actually from um, Galicia, which is, is a, a region with a historical language as well. It's called Gallego, and it's, it's very similar in terms of, like, what they did to keep the language alive, what the Catalans did, what the Quebecers did. All these cases, they kind of, like, learned from each other. And that's that's how I kind of developed what or kind of honed what I believe our strategy should be here. So in Quebec, like, it's interesting because people often think of like, oh, why are you comparing Louisiana with Quebec? Quebec is this advanced society and French is <laughs> everywhere. And Louisiana is like this poor backwater and it'll never be like Quebec. And also French is basically dead in Louisiana. And there's not, it's it's not du bon français in Louisiana, but really, and, and so there, there's truth to all of that, right? Obviously, like Louisiana is a very poor region, despite being one of the resource rich region, most resource rich states, which is a whole other conversation. But um, it is indeed. Yeah, it is indeed. And then obviously French is highly threatened. But people don't realize that in the 60s, Quebec was actually in a very similar situation as where like Louisiana is today. It was it was a very uh, religious place. It was almost, you could say, too religious in the sense that um, I'm religious, I'm Catholic, but I just mean that 
the church had almost too much power. Like the church ran, ran almost everything and the state was very weak and they had very limited social services. The French language was dying the Anglophones were coming in similar to what happened with us where people with the economic power were the Anglophones and they came in. And so as part of La Révolution Tranquille, like a lot of this is obviously not new to you, but my kind of take on it, and there is, and this is consistent with a lot of research that's been done is that, and I think is a good strategy for both y'all and us going forward is that they were say, okay, let's keep the language alive. But they said, we're going to keep the language alive because we have this unique collective identity as Quebecois and the sure. language is fundamental to that. But then there's also these other things. There's the religion, there's laicite, there's all these other aspects to their collective identity. And then, so that's one piece is like, okay, telling the narrative about what is this collective identity. But then I think the piece that's really even potentially more, uh, more exciting and more inspiring, and then also potentially more helpful for our pitch to elected leaders is that they use that collective identity and that establishment of social solidarity to do great things, you know, as, as a nation, so to speak, or as a province, whatever, whatever you want to say, like they, they built uh, Hydro-Quebec, uh, Hydro-Quebec, which is like, now it exclusively provides hydropower to them, the welfare yeah. state, they built a, a dynamic, a vibrant, dynamic economy, great public institutions for investment and innovation and higher education, et cetera. Um, and all of that happened during this process of saying, okay, our culture is threatened, our, our identity is threatened, our way of life is threatened, let's get together and do something about it. And so that's why I think is, again, like one of the pieces that people miss in terms of this regional identity stuff is that people get the whole business investment and sure. um, tourism piece, if you explain it to them, right? French people, they'll come if we speak French, right? That's somewhat uh, self-explanatory. But I think this piece is a really key piece in places, especially in a place like Louisiana, because of our internal divisions, uh, rural, urban, black, white, Republican, Democrat, uh, we have a relatively dysfunctional government. And so we need things like this that can bring people together and say, OK, we're going to put aside our differences and focus on what we have in common to accomplish what we need to accomplish to not only keep our culture alive, but to keep our economy and environment um, sustainable for like the next for future generations. But getting back to your organization, I'm just curious, day to day, nuts and bolts basis, what does it look like for you guys and yeah. uh, what? What are your ultimate goals and how do you measure to see that you are achieving those? So basically, we started with a, a media mission. Our goal was basically just to create media content in Louisiana French and then also in Louisiana Creole, which is obviously like a related language, but a separate language. It's more syntactically like Haitian Creole uh, or other Creole languages. And so that's our predominant mission is to create media in French. Now we have this kind of other mission of like, changing mentalities and changing opinions around French in Louisiana and around the, the narrative around the culture and the history and the heritage. But on a day-to-day -day basis, the way that works is predominantly through creating, creating media. And so we predominantly do audiovisual uh, media. And so we predominantly do videos like interviews, short films, event coverage, promo videos, ads, documentaries. And then, like I said, we're working on developing, slotting out a few uh, regular programs, one of which will be an animated program, um, which is <laughs> we're really excited about. And then That's one, awesome. a, a few others will be educational and then others will be cultural. And so, yeah, on a database basis, what it works is like the one side of it is producing the content, getting together, working with partners, um, going to schools, going out to Piafa, going out to Grand Isle, going out to wherever um, we're shooting, shooting an interview or a, an ad or a short film or whatever it is. And then the other side of it is like working to find to to find funding for it. Yeah, we received, I think, one grant, no, two grants, two public grants. But then most of our funding has been like sponsor or client based funding. 
And so that's one of the advantages of what I was saying about how there is this appetite and this desire to reconnect with the culture, but people don't really know how to do it. And so we're trying to make that easy both for individuals and businesses to say, okay, to start, you can just consume our content and get more used to the culture and the language. But then also you can sponsor content. You can help us. You can partner with us on content. You can create a series with us, an ad with us, a documentary with us. And then, so that's kind of more the private side. And then in terms of the public side, we're, that's one of our big, or at least for me as the CEO, one of the big focuses over the next few months is trying to figure out a way to, uh, we're in touch with the with the Lieutenant Governor's Office and with the Governor's Office, also uh, various other elected officials um, in the state, but we're trying to figure out a way to formalize our relationship with the state and turn Televisian into a public, a public-private partnership between the That's state so awesome. and local businesses. And just to like give you like a quick backstory on that, basically what was the original inspiration for Televisian, the name especially, was in the 1970s, or actually it was the late 1960s, I think it was 1969, there was a law that was passed as part of what was like, and that's kind of to my point about how the people who were the um, porteur, the leaders of the Renaissance Cadienne, the Cajun Renaissance is often what it's called. You could also call it an earlier Franco Renaissance in Louisiana, whatever. A lot of them did want to go further, but they were kind of limited by the divisions that existed at the time, but also like the mentalities that existed at the time that were still kind of, um, that still kind of believed that Louisiana French isn't real French, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway, they, they, they did get this law passed in 69 that said the legislator authorized the creation of something that would, should have been called Television Louisiane which would have been a second Louisiana public broadcasting, um, which is basically what we do. It's basically the create so video awesome. content in French to keep yeah. the language alive. And so it ended up being folded into LPB. And then there were some Louisiana productions, which are great. And you can find on the LPB website. But then I think my understanding is nowadays there's, well, I, I'm confident that nowadays there weren't Louisiana productions and predominantly there was just um, some Frank, some Canadian productions were bought and distributed in Louisiana to some extent, which is obviously like better than nothing. But sure. to our earlier points that we believe that this can only work if it's ours. You know, it's like it can only work from an economic perspective if it's like buy and for Louisianans, because then you can make the economic pitch. But then also in a cultural identitarian perspective, people are only going to be interested. They're going to be more interested if it's our language that we're speaking and that's in the media. So anyway, yeah. So then that's that's going to be our pitch and or is currently our pitch is saying, OK, we get that, you know, Louisiana is a relatively poor state. Doing this with only public funding might be difficult. Obviously, LPB is already underfunded. Um, sure. But this is something where we can bring public money and private money to the table, potentially also public money from abroad. Um, that's something we're pursuing. There's a huge uh, cultural benefit here, and there's also an economic benefit. And so that's kind of what I'm increasingly focused on the public sector since it's a, a big potential opportunity. Um, and then also potential external partnerships with like the, the government of Quebec, partners in Quebec, the French foreign ministry, potentially international broadcasters like TV5, et cetera. We're all in like, we're very much in initial phases of those conversations. But yeah, because that's that's what we think is that up to this point, we've created a, a good amount of content and we'll right. we have enough fun to continue to creating content. But we're trying to show that now we have proof of concept. We show that there is an interest in this. And so let's, let's take it to the next level and, and make this a real boon for our cultural economy and, and for our culture at large. Yeah, that's awesome because I know a challenge that I'm foreseeing already is that, you know, we can have all this content, but when you go to an investor, the investor is going to want some proof that this content is actually leading to your desired results. And a lot of right. times, you know, they're going to want those numbers to say, you know, we are having the effect that we seek to have by having, you know, XYZ content. I think 
for pro projects like you're doing, like we're doing, I think that's always going to be kind of a challenge sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think, you know, I, I totally think so. I think so too. And then, and that's why it's kind of a bit of a balance. And I think public private makes sense, but at the same time, there is this cultural educational public mission. And so therefore just like, really that's the way public subsidies should work. Right. And that that's, that's why, for example, in other places, like in Quebec or in Canada or in France, like the public broadcast and or in the BBC, right in, in Britain, sure. the public broadcasters are very well funded. And then obviously our 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 uh, like our whole context is different here in America and especially in Louisiana. And so that's kind of our pitch is that we show that their private sector is willing to budge on this if uh, we do it in an exciting, dynamic way that pays off, like you're saying. But the public support really could be. Uh, to be indispensable to kind of making this as big as it could be and reaping the benefit not only for like individual partners, but specifically like for the state and for the industry, like for the cultural economy industry, which is like our predominant industry in it, and it's growing because of the fact that like, uh, especially like the oil and gas and petrochemical industries in recent years, they've had some like uh, challenges. And so, yeah, there's the, the economy is key. And a lot of it comes back to that. Yeah. This is so awesome. Like what you guys are doing, the impact that you guys have, uh, the fact that you're able to work with school kids is absolutely enormous. This is so right. awesome. This entire project is so awesome. Now, if somebody wants to look into your group, get involved, send you guys some money, where can we send them? So they should go to uh, – the easiest is just to do tellouisian.com, no hyphen, so T-E-L-E and then louisian.com. And right now it's we're currently under construction because we're working on the – the new version that will slot out some regular programming in the next few months, but that'll have all the links that you need and the information to contact us. And then we should be, we're probably going to launch a, a crowdfunder in the next few months, but then if people, people can also contact us there with with any questions and they'll also can get added to our email list and see um, all of our existing documentaries and interviews and, and stuff that's there. And we, we try to be pretty responsive. So if people have emails, I mean, if people have ideas for ideas for potential new content or new, new shows or they have feedback for things that they like or didn't like, um, yeah, feel free to reach out. We'd love that. And you, and you can, they can buy merch. They can, they can buy merch now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they can buy our t-shirts. No, that's awesome. Again, we've been talking to Will McGrew, founder, CEO, Tele Louisiana. Will, this has been awesome. This has been, this is absolutely flown by. This has been a great time. Thank you so much for joining us. I think it's, we need to connect more, talk about, uh, how us in New England, you guys down in Louisiana kind of work together to help each other out because I think there's plenty of opportunities there. Yeah, for sure. No, thank y'all. And everything y'all are doing is is great. And we've been we've been fans of the podcast for a few months. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.